Ultrasound Gel Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Ultrasound Gel Podcast. My name is Mike Pratz and today I'm delighted to have with me two very special friends, Nova and Cameron. Cameron Baston is the Department of Medicine Director of Clinical Performed Ultrasound, Assistant Program Director for the Pulmonary and Critical Care Fellowship, and an Assistant Professor of Clinical Medicine. Nova Panabianco is the immediate past president of the ASEP ultrasound section, the president-elect of SCUF, the chair of the system-wide POCUS Alliance at the University of Pennsylvania, and also the EM ultrasound division director. So both of these friends coming to you from the University of Pennsylvania in beautiful Philadelphia, and they are with me today to discuss a very important topic. We are going to be talking about collaboration. And we have, as a little guideline, this beautiful article that was published in the Journal of Ultrasound Medicine, August 2019, titled, Innovation Through Collaboration, Creation of a Combined Emergency and Internal Medicine Point-of-Care Ultrasound Fellowship. So I am excited to talk to you about this. Thank you for coming to the podcast. How are you guys doing today? Great. It's always sunny in Philadelphia. Great. Thanks so much. So here's how this podcast is going to go. The goals today are basically twofold. We want to discuss this article and with it go over the pointers and pitfalls of developing a combined emergency medicine, internal medicine fellowship, or even any sort of combined ultrasound fellowship. But through that, we're also going to discuss interspecialty ultrasound collaboration opportunities, which I think is an area that is really ripe for discussion, research, and all sorts of great collaborations between disciplines. So Cameron, you were the first author on this article. Do you mind kind of going through the background, uh, how this came to be? Yeah. Um, the idea of having somebody who was not in emergency medicine go through the clinical ultrasound fellowship that's well established at, at Penn um, was one that took a lot of conversations with uh, Nova, the former division head AJ Dean, um, and me when I first arrived at Penn for my pulmonary critical care fellowship. But once we kind of navigated all of that, I was uh, wrapping up my my fellowship year, and we were sitting in the conference back when you know people went to conferences instead of just uh, watching the recordings uh, while also homeschooling their kids. And the Society for Clinical Ultrasound Fellowships, which is a, a great conference, was uh, where they were talking about the challenges in recruitment. Um, there's a lot of clinical ultrasound fellowships. They train a, a number of uh, leaders in the field, um, but there's a, an increasing amount of expertise just to, built into the emergency medicine residency. And so we were, we were listening to this, and we were like, God, the work that we've done here and making this a new pathway for getting uh, people recruited to these fellowships and sharing this expertise is something that we've got to write down so that other people can figure out how we did it and find the parts of it that'll work for them. Uh, and we just started scribbling literally during the conference. That's a great story of how this came to be. I I noticed that in my experience, in my understanding, there's probably very few combined fellowships in the country. Is that right? Yeah. At the the time when we were doing this, there um, were two internal medicine-focused point-of-care ultrasound fellowships. Um, We were the first one to try uh, explicitly combining uh, the emergency medicine and ultrasound and internal medicine pathways. uh, a couple of other uh, leaders nationally had been creating the Primary Care Ultrasound Fellowship out in Oregon, and, uh, and since then there's been a couple of other internal medicine-focused ones. Um, but I think that we were the first to really say, 
why try to do this individually? We should do this together. The model of having a non-EM person come in and do the ultrasound fellowship has certainly been explored, but it, they were not funded or contracted dually. So the, the sustainability of that kind of fellow wasn't as robust as the thing that we thought we could create. So by creating a, a fellowship that had uh, the educational platform of the emergency department, but a contract through uh, a clinical line outside of the ED was the solution to making it a financially viable and sustainable fellowship for everybody. That's a really good point, Nova, because I, lo- I bet that a lot of ultrasound educators or fellowship directors would look at this concept and be like, yeah, of course I would love to have an internal medicine uh, fellowship or a combined fellowship somehow, but it is a lot more complicated than just desiring it and opening up to applicants. You have to do a lot of behind the scenes figuring out of the logistics before this can actually be feasible. And that's part of what this article is is helping us figure out. I will also share that Cray Bolger, my faithful co-host, also navigated through this in starting a family medicine, emergency medicine fellowship, this being our first year, and that's been a, uh, a big success for us as well. So I also have a little bit of a perspective on what that looks like in combining with another department. First of all, yay, Cray, that's awesome. We for also for this year have created our first official family medicine uh, track, and we're really excited for that. And it's a different model than it's mostly outpatient. So we'll be exploring the the novelty of having an outpatient-related ultrasound fellowship. From what I know about you both, always looking at the next steps forward. What's after you accomplish this? What can we do next? So I love that. We got to build an army. <laughs> That's right. So it sounds like this article is asking the question, what does an internal medicine ultrasound fellowship look like and how can emergency medicine collaborate with internal medicine through this? So Nova, maybe you could kind of summarize this article, what it tells us about the process. The first thing that needs to happen is figuring out how to set it up because the the curriculum is actually much easier than starting the program. Um, at least in my opinion, but in terms of setting it up, the the most important thing was to find the win-win scenarios uh, and trying to make it either net sum zero or profitable to everybody. If you're going to your C-suite or to your administrators and you're going to say, this is something I want, but it's going to cost you 10 to 50 grand to do it, they're not going to be all that excited for that process. Um, so it needed to be neutral or positive. Many emergency departments have observation units, and those can be staffed by emergency physicians, at least at Penn, they're staffed by EM physicians, but they're also staffed by internal medicine and others. So it seemed like a very natural place to start with a a fellow uh, ship line. Cameron was our amazing uh, ambassador of the fellowship, and then we felt this was a a win for us, so we we recruited our second fellow, who's Nathaniel Reisinger who is actually a nephrologist, and we were f- trying to figure out how we were going to teach a nephrologist anything uh, related because <laughs> the kidneys are only so we do hydro, and that was it didn't seem like a huge fellowship kind of topic. But, you know, it turns out volume status is the biggest challenge for a nephrologist, and um, we all we do a lot of that. So Nathaniel came on uh, through our observation unit, and he came – it fit very much like the emergency medicine fellowship model. It's within our department. It is a 0.5 FTE. It was shift work, so it was, the math was was and accounting was easy, and we were able to use all the mechanics of our EM fellowship to make the EDOU slot for our, our IM fellow. For Nathaniel, it seemed like one of the big things was uh, 
once you identified that volume status was this like area where he could be a leader in nephrology uh, skill development nationally, um, he started coming up with some really interesting research projects. And I think that that's one of the things that this fellowship is really structured around is how do we take these trainees and make them leaders in the field? And for a lot of people, that's gonna, that mechanism is going to be through uh, developing a novel research pathway for their specialty or a novel educational pathway for their specialty. And I feel like that's what Nova uh, and the crew did really well for kind of everybody involved. That's a really good point. Early on, as we mentioned, there's not that many fellowships out there. So it sounds like we really need to develop the champions who then go on and continue to train others and as as you said, Nova, develop an army in that in that way by continuing to educate people and get more and more leaders in the field involved. So that sounds like a really a really nice idea. And then along the way, doing the research, sharing your work with others continues to to help that end. So Nova, you mentioned the curriculum changes a little bit behind the scenes. I'm sure that must have occurred before you actually had a fellow and before everything else. So I guess my question to you would be, what was like the first step in this process? In terms of the education, there is a, a fundamental language of point of care ultrasound that everybody needs to know, and that is universal, whether you're regardless of your specialty. We've now graduated eight fellows, and we have three more non-EM fellows coming in next year. Each fellow has a specific curricular need that is unique to them. Because they're a diverse group, we've had critical care fellows, we've had two nephrologists, we've had four hospitalists, we've had now one FM, next year another FM, and each person comes in with a, a niche that they would like to pursue and a career path that they would like to develop. And so we have really addressed the curriculum, uh, focusing on the fundamentals, and particularly for the first few months. And then as the fellowship evolves, we discuss what is it that you need in order to be satisfied with your training and whether that's musculoskeletal or volume status or advanced echo, reach out to our collaborators, which the system-wide committee has really allowed us to have better connections and better bridges to the non-EM focused stakeholders, and then have our fellows meet those people and get their curricular training. Not to go on too much of a tangent, but I imagine that the system-wide or institutional POCUS really supports this the whole goal of this collaboration in that you already know a lot of the people that are interested in various departments of the hospital. You can facilitate some of the interdepartmental training or perhaps training with people in the echo suite or, or ICU, other places that they do a lot of ultrasounds. So I imagine that with without that, it may be even harder to start something like this at someone's own institution. Yeah, we went ahead and started the fellowship first, and there were definitely some points where it seemed like we were going to have uh, uh, turf wars. We, I feel like we were pretty lucky that the timing has really uh, changed, and that and that battles that were fought a lot a decade ago are now um, areas for negotiation and cooperation instead. And so the POCUS Alliance actually started uh, after my fellowship year uh, with NOVA heading it, has really involved every specialty within the institution and is doing some really cool stuff, especially in the setting of uh, COVID. Having that, having all those people already used to being in a room and talking with each other about how to problem solve uh, issues around point of care ultrasound uh, made some of the, made us really nimble when it came to, oh my gosh, how are we going to change the clinical settings? And this this place is now an ICU and what what's our echo capability and what's our uh, ultrasound capability for procedures? Um, all of that was much faster and easier because these relationships had been established. 
It always comes back to relationships, and I think building those bridges is incredibly valuable. And and obviously, the earlier that you can build bridges, it will serve you when you actually have some something else to do with with those departments specifically. So that's a really solid lesson. I like that idea. Now, Cameron, I'd love to hear from you because as is detailed in the paper, after you finished your fellowship, then you went on to help out the internal medicine department in a couple different ways. Can you talk about that? Yeah, that was, again, that was a a little bit of an alignment of the stars where um, some of our upper level educational leadership um, uh, in the dean's office and the uh, program director for the residency recognized that um, they wanted to maintain their kind of statement that they're a groundbreaking, innovative program uh, in internal medicine, but they didn't have the ability to teach point-of-care ultrasound. And then, and then I was kind of sitting around uh, getting ready to apply for jobs. And so they, they were like, all right, we can, we can do this. We can take advantage of local expertise and create a position. Um, and the focus was very much initially on creating an educational curriculum for the, for the internal medicine residents. Um, with the idea being that the medical school, thanks to Dr. Wilma Chan and other programs, are churning out people with an incredible amount of ultrasound savvy in comparison to the faculty and to the house staff. And so you get into this weird situation where the medical students know more than the residents who are teaching themselves and unable to be adequately supervised by faculty. So with a little bit of a nudge about legal vulnerability, all of a sudden there was available <laughs> resources to help create a program uh, to try to make this the way it should be, like a combination of top-down and bottom-up teaching so that everybody gets a chance to learn how to use this uh, technology, become better as diagnosticians, and become safer in their use of ultrasound for procedures and, and clinical decision-making. Cameron has done an amazing job of advocacy. You, you understand the issues at hand. You understand the places where the internal medicine uh, training program could grow and make the argument why point-of-care ultrasound should be in that space because the curriculums are, are crowded the the trainees are already busy so how do you make the argument that point-of-care ultrasound is a necessary and, and vital part of a training program and that you need a person who should be leading that that work it's almost like what we were we were 30 years ago with inter- with emergency medicine trying to create the the divisions and the fellowship directors Right. It sounds like after the fellowship, Cameron, you were well poised to assess the needs and you can sometimes see where things are missing and where they should be. And like you said, what what is the ideal that we would strive for? And then sometimes slowly, but surely work your way to, to get there with the resources. One thing that I was really fascinated by in this paper is the funding aspect. You alluded to this earlier, that that can really be a hurdle for a lot in setting this up. The paper actually really nicely lays out many different ways to obtain funding for a fellowship like this. Can you talk about those? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and there are different strategies that, that one can take. Again, you can use the available pathways within your own emergency department, such as the observation unit. A lot of it comes down to math. We figured out what a salary would be for a hospitalist, and we assess the salary of a, of a standard fellow and as a PGY for internal medicine fellow. And there was a difference. And that delta between the, the salary of a 0.5 FT hospitalist versus the, the fellowship training allowed for uh, accounting units and, and finances that could be used to fund the faculty in the emergency department uh, through an educational stipend. 
grants are another possibility, and I think Cameron can speak more to this, of training grants that will support the, the, the fellowship education. My pulmonary fellowship was, uh, was actually um, funded through a T32, an NIH training grant for physician scientists. And um, through that, I was getting a master's degree in epidemiology. Uh, the reason that this is relevant is, is that by showing that the training that I was going to get through the ultrasound fellowship aligned with the, um, with the eventual career path and the academic scholarship that I was trying to do, the research I was trying to do, this was uh, kind of consistent with, oh, by having me do these extra shifts and extra training, I'm... Uh, I'm supporting the goal of the T32. I'm publishing uh, novel research in the realms of uh, clinical outcomes and, in, in my case, a little bit of medical education, um, while not violating the terms of the T32, which uh, very clearly limit the amount of clinical time somebody can do in a given year. Most of the time has to be spent on uh, academic work, whether that's master's degrees or, uh, or grant-funded research projects. That's wonderful. And I hope it's not too much of an extrapolation to say that I think in the same way that you efficiently used that grant because you saw the parallel in how that could serve both your career, it could serve the institution, research, it seemed like everything came together to point in that one direction. Similarly, I think that's the whole goal of this interdepartmental combination where you see how this would benefit both groups. It would it would really benefit ultrasound and ultimately it would benefit our patients by teaching more people how to use these skills. So I think aligning those goals and aligning the the shared hopes for all these groups can really um, draw together the right people and the right motivations and trying to figure out how to make it work. I mean, I was, I was an engineer before I uh, changed careers and went into medicine, and we are, we are all about efficiency. So if, uh, if there is a pathway that would allow us to streamline resource allocation in order to get the outcomes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to find it. That makes sense. So the next thing I wanted to talk about that was, again, highlighted in this paper really well would be the barriers because we talked about funding that can be a challenge and let's be honest this this is not going to be feasible for every single fellowship or even any type of academic center there's certain requirements that you'd need so maybe you can talk from your experience about barriers that you may encounter and possible solutions one of the main barriers is that in the creation of these combined fellowships you're taking a group, the emergency medicine department, um, with a well-established pathway of funding, billing, clinical applications, documentation, all of these sort of things, and you're bringing somebody into that group, uh, an internal medicine or family medicine physician, for example, who's then going to try to figure out how to integrate that practice into, uh, into a department that is not used to doing this. And so learning the complexities of bundled payments versus uh, fee-for-service, inpatient versus outpatient payment strategies and all that sort of stuff, much less the legal liabilities associated with an outpatient ultrasound versus an inpatient ultrasound versus an emergency department ultrasound. Um, created like a surprising amount of learning that I didn't anticipate was going to be a part of the fellowship, um, but ends up being really important for, like we talked about, if you're going to be training the leaders in this, not just people who are great at wielding a probe, but the people who are going to be setting up programs wherever they go, who are going to be changing the way that nephrologists practice or outpatient pulmonary docs practice, um, then understanding this, these management and negotiations is essential, but also not easy. Um, and that's where 
again, just to kind of talk up the fertile ground that our home institution represented for this sort of thing. People were ready to work with us on this. The compliance and billing people, the um, internal medicine, the critical care department heads were all were all willing to, to work with us on this. I agree. And I will say we, we actually haven't had a lot of barriers that we, as Cameron has said, we are in a good time for this, the understanding that point of care ultrasound is a valuable tool, I think is now here. And establishing a, a fellowship level training program where it was win-win for everybody was actually pretty easy. That's wonderful. You have to start with your hard asks. For example, we our fellows couldn't be asked to work 2,000 hours per year because then they wouldn't be able to do the educational components. So we had a very hard line about how many clinical hours they would work per year, that they had to have Mondays completely off in order to do the didactic uh, training and video review that we do for our, our uh, all of our fellows. And once those these I, items were identified and the elements of the fellowship were very clear, we were able to get creative about how we would we would meet those needs. So my, one of my suggestions would be if you're starting a new program, ask yourself what are the, the essential elements of your training program that if you did not have, you couldn't feel you could adequately train your, can, your fellows. And write those down, bring them to the, the service line that you are hoping to collaborate with, and then they, sh- with any luck, should be eager to work with you around those. Penn is, has been very innovative and accepting of this, but with a good argument that this is good win-win for everybody. One of the reasons we're able to pull this off is, um, is that we have, for example, when Nova talked about the, just the list of what the things you absolutely need, we have machines available in most of our inpatient wards. And I know from having practiced in other institutions that that's not always the case. Um, admittedly, the economics of, of purchasing machines has changed uh, in the last three years. Um, with the advent of several low-cost uh, devices, but um, but it, I would worry about somebody who's being set up with a skill set and then placed in a hospital that doesn't have uh, the opportunity for them to continue to practice and integrate it clinically. You need to have several physical components. I mean, you need to have the equipment, you need to have the environment in such a way that it would uh, work with this type of education. And then also, it sounds like you need to have people trained to um, be able to provide oversight or training in all those different locations. So I would love to hear at this point, now that you're several years into this, what has the impact been between the emergency and internal medicine departments? I am and and EM, I feel like uh, have this fascinating dynamic um, of making work for each other uh, that that can... uh, (laughs) that can make things tense, but also um, our institution, amongst others, has long had the trainees rotate um, between the two service lines, where internal medicine residents rotate in the emergency uh, department and emergency medicine rotate uh, residents rotate through the wards in the ICU. Um, and so we've, we've had a fairly overlapping set of training programs to begin with, um, but I think things have, have just gotten closer. and. Not to oversell it, but the, I feel like the way that we were able to collaborate around uh, the early COVID surge was a, a nice demonstration of this, where um, immediately it was uh, it was combined specialties in the room together talking about, is ultrasound going to be used in triage tents? Is ultrasound going to be used uh, as part of a specific protocol? Where are the machines going to live? How can we share resources? Hey, right now we've got 
um, three COVID stand-up ICUs and not enough machines, but the ED OBS units closed, can we can we utilize one of those machines in order to uh, support this, and then vice versa as things um, decelerate? Um, so I I feel like you know. <laughs> I almost don't remember the pre-COVID time, but <laughs> during the COVID time, I feel like there were some nice demonstrations of collaboration that uh, that I would I would think could be laid at least partially at the door of the connections and relationships that were strengthened through this fellowship. I completely agree with that. But even and even before COVID, we now all know each other. We speak the same language. So if you have a training course that you need teachers for, we come in when we have sessions that we need. Uh, lecturers and, and hands-on training for you come down. So we have now blurred the line of the departments in a way that I think is quite magical. And I can't under um, underestimate the value of having our, our um, ultrasound educator, who is Christy Moore, who's a tech. And she's been able to walk all the lines between emergency medicine, critical care, nephrology, the medical school, um, and her bandwidth and her uh, excitement for point of care ultrasound really is, has no uh, specialty assignment, and I think that had we not had the medical school, Christy, Wilma, and uh, Cameron, who stopped seeing people as, as their specialty and saw each other as a of a point of care ultrasound educator and researcher and clinician, we wouldn't have been as successful as we've been. Yes, that's a very utopian description of how it should should happen in real life, where everybody kind of respects and values the the differences and the diverse points of view and backgrounds in education and can all use their strengths together to help each other out whenever there's various needs. You know, it's funny that um, I know Christy pretty well. She actually trained me in residency before she came to Penn, and that was uh, she is very talented, and so I, I can only imagine how she's helped out the program there as well. So let's use that as a gateway into the future directions. I think we're coming to an end for this podcast, but what's next here? I mean, you've mentioned not just collaborations in the fellowship itself, but even beyond that with now that we have trained faculty and really proficient educators in different fields, it seems like the sky's the limit. Yeah, I, f I feel like that's the most exciting thing. And without making this like a roll call of what the fellow projects have been over the last five years, um, we're talking about a geriatrics fellowship that's using ultrasound for home visits, which if you, I can't think of a population where this is more applicable in modern urban America than in the homebound population. And we've got um, nephrologists who are talking in terms of beelines when they're when they're deciding what to do uh, with their dialysis settings and we have uh, cardiology fellowship directors reaching out to talk about how are we going to get our fellows trained in lung ultrasonography um, so I mean it's just really exciting seeing how we're taking this skill set and finding the niche for specific clinical applications in just about every subspecialty within medicine and emergency medicine and critical care. The silver lining of COVID is that the classroom is now virtual, and so that if you're looking for what ways to integrate people into collaborative and crowdsourced education, the virtual platform is a solution. Mike, you asked about barriers. For us, we haven't had a lot of barriers in creation of the fellowship, but the part that keeps me up at night and worried is that we will train somebody and they won't be able to find the job that they want because other institutions haven't quite seen the the value and so I'm worried 
will they get a, a protected role where they can do the work that it takes to create a program to train the faculty, to train the house staff. I think for future directions is to promote the the concept of point-of-care ultrasound outside of emergency medicine and to support those uh, career paths through research, through education, so that the work can be done uh, long-term. There's always a certain amount of risk of being the pioneer, cutting through and, and innovating then you have to sometimes wait a little bit for everyone else to catch up. So that is interesting. And I think that's one of the wonderful things about this article is that it does share your experiences in a way that hopefully it will provide some help to others who are trying to do the same thing. And again, that just benefits everybody altogether. This has been a really fascinating discussion. Do you guys have any last words to share or general advice for others who are interested in pursuing a similar sort of setup? Identify win-win solutions. Think about your credentialing and privileging early and identify where the challenges could be in terms of a non-EM model. I would tailor your curriculum to your individual fellow instead of trying to make a one-size-fits-all for a non-EM person. They're, they're going to bring their individual interests and experiences to the, to the program. And you should, you should embrace that because they will take you in directions that you couldn't think of and they're super exciting. As Cameron was saying, you know, these opportunities for collaborative research and uh, evidence building for point-of-care ultrasound is an important aspect of what the work that we'll do to support this development. Yeah, I think I think one of the key parts of our success has been finding the right people to put in leadership positions. So having, having Nova, who literally uh, has said <laughs> that she is up at night worrying about the fate of her fellows and their ability to find their individual success, uh, is a demonstration of how important it was that we had the people we had um, when we were first making this happen. People who, who are willing to be diplomatic, who recognize that everybody's standing on the same ground, which is how do we make patient care as excellent as possible? How do we continue to make ourselves more capable for the next thing coming down the pike? And people who are going to care about the trainees in a meaningful way. And I feel like having Nova at the helm uh, through these uh, last years has really defined the fellows that we've been recruiting and the successes that they've had. I really appreciate you two taking the time to share this with me because, frankly, it's been inspiring. There's there's so much that can be done in the future, and I really enjoy hearing and dreaming about it. Maybe to the listener out there, it's not the right time for you to do a combined fellowship, but that doesn't mean that there's no way that you can collaborate with others. There's still a lot of other ways. Maybe it's starting with an institutional point-of-care ultrasound committee, getting that started, collaborating with research projects where you can share an interest or an interesting idea, or even maybe it's just combined educational topics where somebody gives an ultrasound lecture to another department, you share in their expertise, and again, always looking for that mutual benefit that motivates people. So I'm excited for where this is going to go in the future. I think this is just the beginning, but you guys have made a lot of great progress. So again, I appreciate your time, and it's always good to see your smiling faces. Thanks so much Thank for having us. Thank you so much us. for having us. Well, thanks for joining us for another special edition of the Ultrasound Gel podcast. It's really been a blast. Remember, you can always find out more about the podcast at ultrasoundgel.org. Feel free to visit our Facebook page or talk to any of us on Twitter. Until then, my friends, talk to you later. More. 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 Is that why you've got that filter on so you sound like Morgan Freeman? Is that what uh, he did that? (laughs) He did that, yes.